so often we we can think nothing's going right in our calling. We can we can be pursuing something. We can be looking at everyone around us and sort of be frustrated that it's it's just not coming together. And I would just say, is it a good idea or is it a God idea? Hello, and welcome to How to Fail Successfully, the podcast that teaches the steps to success through the stories of failures. I'm so happy that you can join me as I interview some of my favorite people and encourage them to share their story with you. I'm Matthew Carrier, and this is How to Fail Successfully. Gobstoppers also known as jawbreakers, are a hard type of candy. The term gobstopper derives from gob, which is slang in the United Kingdom and Ireland for mouth. Gobstoppers usually consist of a number of layers, each layer dissolving to reveal a different color. Now, if you were to bite into a gobstopper, you would probably risk some dental damage, hence the name jawbreaker. Why am I explaining this to you? Well, on today's episode, I sit down with author, entrepreneur, and my friend, Luke McElroy. Luke has just authored his soon-to-be first book called Creative Potential. And in this book, Luke talks about the four layers to unlocking your creative potential. And we will discuss that in this episode. The other thing that Luke will mention is how there's a difference between being an artist and being creative. A lot of people feel that if they're not creating something like art or music, that they're not creative. But Luke will dispel that myth. This is my conversation with Luke. Enjoy. Okay, so in the studio today, this is for the first time in my studio, I've got a guest. And today's guest is Luke McElroy. Hello. Did I say your last name correctly? You did. Okay. This is a very palatial studio, by the way. Thank you. I don't know what that means. Big. Oh, thanks. Spacious. Okay. Beautiful. Overdone. Well, he's an author, which is why he uses big words. <laughs> and before we started recording, he taught me a little something about his last name. So can you explain to us the differences between Mac and Mick? Yeah. So my last name is spelled M-C-E-L-R-O-Y. And because of the famous fast food restaurant that is probably not sponsoring this no. uh, podcast. No, well, we can say it. Yeah. it's Most people want to say McElroy, which is a very common mispronunciation. But the English language is actually M-C and then a consonant. It's pronounced Mick, just like McDonald's, right? Because it's M-C-D. But if it's M-C and then a vowel, like my last name, it would be McElroy. So it'd be so, a Mac. So fascinating. Yeah. See, I told him I want to start providing even more value to my podcast so this go. is you know if you don't learn anything else today you can go meet an mc something last name person him, and know yeah. It. <laughs> now uh, i asked luke to come on because he is about to come out with a book that just the the title alone and the subject matter was right up our alley and mm-hmm. so kind of fill us in with what you're working on today yeah so my current season i mean i've got this book coming out in march and it's a nonstop. You can always be working on it, right? I mean, I, I know that's the entrepreneur's plague, but I think that anybody who has a big project that they're really passionate about, you can always do more. And so right now, literally every waking moment, every day I wake up, I'm thinking, gosh, how can I reach more people? How can I share this story? Because it's it's not just my story. It is everyone's story. 
And I think it'll impact people as they dive into it and see what God did in my midst. But on top of that, on top of my own personal journey of trying to get a book out and, you know, helping people, we're trying to build a business. We run a company called Orange Thread Live Events. And so we we do a plethora of live events, projection, video, graphics, all that sort of stuff for a multitude of stuff. We just got back last week from an event at the Super Bowl, which is pretty crazy that I can even say that out loud. Can we can we get some details about that? <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, the Super Bowl, like most massive sporting events, create really a, a sort of giant circus or festival of another secondary, third, fourth, whatever events. And we got the privilege of being right across the street. We we're on 6th Street, U.S. Bank. I literally, when I left the venue, I saw it every day. It was just crazy. Um, for those who watch the Super Bowl halftime show, we were in the Prince logo to give you perspective. Right? Oh, okay. <laughs> so so uh, anyway, the venue was right across the street and it was really a concert series. So for the three nights leading up to the Super Bowl, they had Imagine Dragons, Pink. She was literally flying through the air on suspended wires. It was crazy. J-Lo, which was just a off-the-chain concert. And then P. Diddy was the last night. And so we just we did a massive projection mapping on a wall. For AT&T, they sponsored, or Samsung sponsored it for an AT&T lounge. And so it was just a really cool event. So I'm, I'm doing that. That's taking a lot of time, a lot of energy, and, and we're trying to do some really exciting things as a company. But even further than that, we've got another brand called Triple Wide Media. And it's really like an online e-commerce store for live event entities that we sell stock content in a multitude of, of resolutions. And that's huge. I mean, we have 15, 20,000 pieces of media. What do you mean by stock content? So, you know, it, the best example is like iTunes. You know, you go to iTunes and you can buy an artist's music. Well, you can come to Triple Wide and you can buy an artist's piece of video. And so that artist may be a no-name guy in Sweden, you know, who's cranking out moving backgrounds, digital animated loops. And so our whole vision is we want to be the live event stock media company. Um, and, and we want to try and resource any live entity. So everything from a church to a concert to a corporate event, all that stuff. So Now, before we get into your story, how do you have time for all this? I'm Superman. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, that team. I mean, that's yeah. that's the honest truth. I have an amazing team, and it's not even, it's not even me. I mean, a lot of this stuff, um, I've really had to learn the art of sort of casting vision and backing off, casting vision and backing off, and letting them drive, letting them own. I mean, I, that's tough because in my past I've had a ton of people quit on me. And when people quit on you, that just hurts. And, and you, your natural reaction as a leader is to go, okay, well, I got to control this a little more because I, this hurts now too much if I just kept a hand on it. But the truth of the matter is where true success comes from is when you let your team, well, you, you give your team space so that they can grow, right? Great friend of mine says, you got to let go to let grow. Um, another mentor of mine has always taught me, you can go fast by yourself. I can do a ton on my own, but I will never go far mm. because at some point you're going to have to hand the baton off and you have to go drink some water. Wow. So. I, I like that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're obviously, um, you've, you've found success now running three companies, putting out a book that's going to come out soon. So let's just kind of start from the beginning. Every story has some bumps and bruises along the way. I guarantee yours is no different, yep. which according to your book, it is not. <laughs> so let's kind of start there. Share with us your story. Yeah. So when I was growing up, I, I grew up in the church. And I think when you grow up in the church, the first thing you're told is you're going to have a calling. You know, you, 
and and I actually had tell this in the book, but I actually thought that was an actual phone call, <laughs> which uh, shouldn't have thought because God never called my cell phone. You know, I didn't really have a cell phone back then. But in the process of sort of praying through that and sort of wrestling with, you know, what is that thing that God has designed you or purposed you for? Um, I, I just sort of always had that on my head. I, I became an intern at our church working with the youth ministry. And we were on a bus driving down to Panama City Beach, Florida. You remember those buses that they had that awful rainbow pattern? Oh, yeah. You know, I used to claim, and I, I, I really do think that it's so that when Skittles become infused into them, you have no clue that there's sugar all over that seat. You get on that crusty seat. Yeah, Skittles is the go-to snack for <laughs> yeah, Christians. Exactly. So, yeah. So, anyway, we're on this bus, and I just remember so vividly this picture dropping into my head. And that picture, I, I, I mean, I remember as clear as day. I mean, it, I was looking, I was standing in the back of the room looking at a sea of people. There was some sort of event happening up front. There was a person up on, on stage. And I just remember sitting there thinking to myself, wow, this may be the calling, right? And now, what do you do when you're in high school and you're trying to figure out what this picture was? Because as quickly as it came, it left and it was gone. And all I was left with was this sort of thought while driving down the road, stuck on a bus. Wow, what do I do with my life? And how do I leverage that picture to really pursue what I feel like God's put put in front of me? And so I, over a couple of days and, and weeks, I, I really sort of bought this lie that honestly, the, the phrase I use is that I started Photoshopping the picture. I mean, the picture didn't have a lot of answers. And I'm such a driven guy that once results that I just decided to start making up my own answers to the questions I was asking. And lo and behold, thought it was a youth camp. And so those who knew me in end of high school, early ages of uh, college, they knew that I would tell everybody. I'd introduce myself. Hey, I'm Luke McElroy, MCE, right? <laughs> and I'm going to build a youth camp one day. And that was just the whole identity. What I, do you mean by youth camp? Oh, I mean blob and alpine tower, campfires, singing. What's that song? Pharaoh? Yeah, um, or uh, Pharaoh down the road. What? Whatever that bad camp song is. <laughs> That's the camp idea, right? Cabins and all this. But I want And so I, dude, I had themes. I had websites made. I had logos ready. I mean, this is how driven I was. And I'd pursued this path. And I got so far to, I remember having a phone call with a guy, freshman year of college, who was a real estate agent in uh, Atlanta. And he was telling me what the price of land was in North Georgia, because that's where I was going to do it. He also referred me to a guy who was a lawyer who could help me set up 501c3 status. And I remember on that phone call, that guy said to me verbatim, Luke, don't start a 501c3. And I remember thinking, why? I want to build a camp. I want to build a not-for-profit. And he was like, no, not-for-profits ruin people. <laughs> because once you start one, you can't end one, right? Well, why is that? I don't get it. Yeah. So like, if anyone's on the podcast has ever created one or been involved in one, they know that they basically are setting up another whole government entity. And once it's set up, the only way to dissolve it is to pass all the assets of that entity onto another nonprofit entity. Interesting. So like you couldn't make a retirement. You know, as an entrepreneur, you couldn't build a business and sell it and live off of that in retirement, which is obviously a common entrepreneur exit plan. So he was like, but you can start a regular business and run it like a not-for-profit. And I was like, oh, yeah, you don't have to make profit if you're a for-profit company. <laughs> all, the, all the entrepreneurs are like, of course, this is what I do anyway. So anyway, I there was I, to say this, there was warning after warning after warning that it was just not for me. My youth pastor handed me a book, uh, Visioneering by Andy Stanley. It's a story of Nehemiah. Wrecked my world, dude. 
because in the in the story you learn that Nehemiah had to wait 40 years for God to give him an open door, a go mode, if you will, to the vision he had called him to. So Nehemiah had to sort of wait all these years. And so I think I was in this holding pattern. I put myself there. Um, you know how like a potter makes something, like they press water into it and they mold this and then it has to go into a furnace and sit because the only way for a pot to sort of dry up is to sit in a waiting game in the heat in the pressure to sort of let all that and so I felt like that was what I had to do so I entered this new season and started a company a company called Orange Thread that to be honest with you Matthew I thought it was a holding pattern I thought Orange Thread was just going to be this thing because I knew a little bit about technology I could go into events I could do some things projection mapping camera work lighting all that sort of stuff right just what is that yeah, so it's basically like if anybody's been to a concert or a corporate event or a nonprofit fundraiser, all that production stuff is put on by a team. And so Orange Thread is just one of those companies that, that supports that. One of the things that makes us different is that we don't do touring events. So we don't do like concert tours and all that. But yeah, we own projections we or projectors. We own camera systems. We own screens, lights, all that sort of stuff. And so that was what I thought was this holding pattern. But opportunity kept coming, opportunity kept coming. And I just kept praying this whole time, Lord, please let me know when you're ready for, when, when is go mode for the camp, right? <laughs> and when can I buy the blob? Because that was just a lifelong dream of mine. And anyway, fast forward, started the company, graduated college. God is for some reason breathing on this. Fun fact, I had started five businesses before the age 18. And they had all failed miserably. Like if you take the collective sum of all five of those (laughs) financially, it was not a livable salary, right? And so for some reason, I'm looking at this orange thread thing going, well, God's providing. Like obviously he sees this as a holding pattern too. And I got to be honest with you, I believed my own lie. I kept thinking, hey, I'm not made for this. I'm made for this camp. Why is that? Because that picture was so crisp in my head. And and I think I had- The picture of the- the camp. Yeah, the picture of what I told myself was the camp. I had photoshopped it at that point in my life so much that I had answered all these other questions. I'd put the logo in there. I'd put, there was a youth band and I'd put that all these students were youth kids and that they were all trying to figure out their influence in the world and that I was going to build this camp that helped future kid presidents figure out how to leverage their influence in the world. I mean, really, it's like a camp for CEOs. (laughs) I mean, that's what I thought I was going to do. And here's the thing that I'll say about this. It was a good idea. I still believe to this day that that camp is a good idea. It just wasn't a God idea. And I think so often the enemy will use good ideas in our lives to rob us of God ideas in our lives because we'll accept the good and we're not ready to accept the God thing that's coming. So I kept believing in my heart, I'm going to build a camp one day. I'm Luke McRoy, camp guy. I'm not Luke McRoy production guy. Fast forward, 2011 happens, and the only full-time person that was working for me at the time basically put in his resignation. A massive church up in Chicago was going to hire him, and I was so mad. I mean, if you've ever had an employee abandoned ship, I mean, I'm sorry, put in the resume. <laughs> it feels like <laughs> it feels like they're just you know yeah. putting in the towel. And as an entrepreneur, you throw so much of yourself at what you do. You feel like they're. They're resigning from you. Yeah. No, you do. You feel like they're quitting on you. And even though he was never a part of the camp vision, I genuinely believed this guy is quitting 
and he's going to prevent me from being able to step in my calling. Again, a warning sign that this may not have been my calling if him working for some other holding pattern company was contingent on this camp working. So he left. Our intern at the time said he wasn't going to come back either. And so I left December 2011 basically with this paralyzing fear of, okay, so I don't have a staff now. I go home for Christmas and I get a phone call on December 30th from my landlord that we were renting the office space from on 12 South. And he says, Hey Luke, ran into some financial issues. Just an FYI, I've sold the building. Now let me give you the backstory because we didn't have a lease. And let me tell you why we didn't have a lease because we were a business and we were renting a residential home. <laughs> so oh. we were, I probably shouldn't say that on a recorded piece. Uh, let's but, edit that out. Yeah. Yeah. But we were basically illegally renting. Yeah. And, and he'd sold. And so because of that, I had no sort of backing. But I asked him, I said, is the new landlord going to honor our sort of handshake agreement of 18 months? And he said, yes. He'll call you tomorrow. The problem was the new guy called me and he wanted to buy me out of my lease as soon as physically possible. So now let me just place where we're at. December 20 or 2011, I have no staff and I've just been told I have no office. You know what I thought in my life? It's go mode. We're going to build this camp, baby. You know, the holding pattern is done. And so I spent three weeks in January and in January 2012 and I just started praying and really I got into the word. I read a ton of books. I spent a lot of time with my dad who's been a CEO of a ton of amazing, amazing organizations. And so he was sort of my leadership coach through this and consultant going, man, is it, you know, if I do this camp, like can Orange Thread still be a holding pattern to make money while the camp doesn't make anything? And we were just trying to figure all this out. And one afternoon I went up in my room and I just started praying and I just said, Lord, would you give me some clarity on this camp thing? Like, I just want to know that I know that I know that it's go mode and that I'm not, you know, misreading your signs. And I got to be honest with you. It was that moment that changed everything. I felt like God asked me three very bold questions. Now, I've never heard the audible voice of God. I'm going to say that right now. And I actually have never met anyone who has. But it was that feeling inside. And I felt like the first question that was asked was, Luke, do you have any influence in the youth ministry or youth camp world? I mean, I just spent four or five years of my life doing events for all these crazy corporation events and festivals and conferences and seminars. And I was like, no, God. Time out. Whenever God asks you a question, the answer is never for him. <laughs> okay? The answer is always for you. And so he then said, I felt like he was saying to me, are you going to get a lot of influence in the next season when it comes to youth ministry? At the time, I wasn't plugged in to a youth ministry. I wasn't serving in any way. I wasn't, I didn't have like a regular, you know, column in some news weekly youth ministry world thing. I I wasn't, I didn't have any influence and I wasn't going to get any influence. And so I felt like when he asked the third question, I was feeling a lot of stress and anxiety. I remember pressure on my chest just going, okay, why are you asking me this? Why am I thinking all this now? Like, is this me or is this God? I'm really trying to wrestle with us. And, and the third question was life-changing for me. And he said, then why would I have you build a youth camp? In that moment, I remember tears rolling down my face, and I just remember this weight being lifted off. Mm. And I realized for the first moment in my life, I had been Photoshopping my own picture. And everything changed. And 
So I left and I, I, I left my room. I prayed, processed a little bit, came back to Nashville. And I just remember feeling really lost. I just remember feeling, okay, so this whole identity that I had wrapped myself in because I chose to call it a youth camp was gone. And so I went back, I looked at this picture and, and basically it didn't take long for me to start saying, wait a minute, God cared about where was my influence? Where did I have influence today? And where was the community that maybe I was going to be able to grow more influence to be able to help them recognize their influence. And I just started realizing that God had opened up some opportunities for me to speak specifically into the church on those who serve in the creative realms and help them see the philosophy of how God has called them to be creative and how that creativity can become a vehicle for God to basically take Jesus to the world. You know, I mean, we go to churches and there's broken people leading it and there's wounds and there's hurt and there's agony and but creativity is this language of the invisible that sort of gets a chance to carry us, you know, carry a message in a way that music sometimes can't, words can't, a message can't, a Bible study can't. And so anyway, I started realizing this and it just clicked. That group of people, it was not a camp, it was a conference. And after a lot of prayer, I started realizing, holy cow, it's all the creative people in the world that don't understand their influence. And so anyway, that was sort of the beginning of a whole new journey and I share that whole thing in detail in the book, but it really unlocked something for me. And it, it just sort of reminded me that so often we, we can think nothing's going right in our calling. We can, we can be pursuing something. We can be looking at everyone else around, you know, around us and sort of be frustrated that it's, it's just not coming together. And I would just say, is it a good idea or is it a God idea? Are you, do you consider yourself to be a positive person? I would say so. <laughs> I mean, well, my, I guess my question is that, I mean, with you being a positive person, did that help you overcome those failures? Like, how can you, how can a normal person that maybe struggles with being positive hope for something what's about to happen? Yeah, I think, well, I think I'd say it this way. I think, and, and maybe the five businesses helped me recognize this, but I don't see failure as an end. And I think any successful person in life, I mean, for those listening, think of anybody in your world that you look up to that you say is successful. Odds are good they failed at something somewhere, right? That's the whole premise of this podcast. Is But I don't think failure is the end. People who allow failure to get the best of themselves, they see failure as the end. But I actually, I've always seen it as failure as the beginning. There's a statistic that I read just about six, eight months ago when I was preparing for this book that blew me away. of all first businesses fail, but 90% of all entrepreneurs' second businesses succeed. Hmm. So what I would say very practically to people listening is if if you're on the verge of failing on your first business, just go ahead and throw the towel in and start the second (laughs) business, right? The odds are in your favor. But the second thing I'll say and why I think the 90% succeed on the second is that it would, and this is just a guess, this is not an accurate statement, but... I would guess that 50 to 60% of entrepreneurs never try the second idea. So the odds are in your favor because you, you, you learn so much. Like if you have the resilience and you have the perseverance and you have the drive to say, you know what, I'm not going to let that failure define me. I'm going to move on. Gosh, look at where we'd be, right? How can someone like myself find my calling? You In your book, you talk about this. Yeah. Can you kind of describe the four steps that you list about how to find your calling? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're steps as much as they're layers of an existence. And I think the reason that that's important is that 
though they sort of do have to happen in order, and steps is probably a natural way to think of it, it, it actually is really understanding your identity. And so we start, I, I use this image of a gobstopper, you know, <laughs> or you could use a jawbreaker. Some people call them that, but <laughs> I just like gobstopper because I just think that's a cool word. Um, but basically, if you take it and you cut it in half, you'll see like all the layers, right? You'll see all the colored candies. And I'm just now realizing that connects back to the, you know, Skittles, <laughs> rainbow Skittles <laughs> infused bus. Yeah. I obviously like candy if yeah, you can't obviously. tell. <laughs> so, so anyway, I take a gobstopper and I basically just say like at its core, the inside most layer is uniqueness. We have to understand our identity. We have to understand that we're unique for a couple of reasons. Number one, if, if we're trying to chase someone else's creative potential or someone else's God-given calling, we're never going to step into it because it's not ours. It's someone else's. And so that's not stepping into the uniqueness that God made you to be. In this sort of section of the book, I talk about a lot about the idea that we're made in the image of our God. And because we're made in the image of our God, create is the fifth word in the Bible. It's the first characteristic we see of our God. If you were going to introduce me to your wife and I didn't know who she was, the first thing that comes out of your mouth, like, hey, this is my wife. This is how amazing she is. She, fill in that blank. Whatever that fill in that blank is, is probably to you going to be the most important characteristic or the most noticeable characteristic that you want me to know about, right? So I find it funny that in the Bible, the first characteristic we see of God is that he is creative. He creates. And so I spend a lot of time in those chapters and there are a lot of people listening going, well, I'm not creative because I can't make things out of nothing. Well, I'm going to, challenge you to buy the book and read this and process, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, no, I think you are creative because we are made by a creative God. Now I also help dispel the fact that creativity and artist is very different. And, and there's a balance in that and that one is, is trying to create out of nothing. Whereas another is being able to create out of the environment, which you, you have around you. I mean, a great friend of mine says this about his wife. He's a filmmaker and really creative for a living. He makes money off of quote unquote, industry creativity. But he says, my wife is the creative one in the family because she teaches special education, has to raise four girls while he is so unorganized and all over the place because he's he's a quote unquote creative because he can't keep order, right? And, she, and he says, the reason my wife is so creative is that she has to take ordinary curriculum and figure out how to apply it to people who learn very differently. And no one coaches her in that. And then once she has done that successfully, she has to manage the schedule of four teenage girls with a dad who has always got random crazy shooting hours at night and then weekends or whatever in California where they have to make so much money to make ends meet just to get the bills done. He goes, wow. if that's not creativity, I don't know what is. Yeah. You know? So anyway, so gobstopper, going back to that gobstopper, uniqueness is the the core. And if we don't have that at our core, if we don't really identify that we are unique, and I really break down what unique creativity looks like, all that, we can't add any more layers to it. And so once we have our core, our, our, our uniqueness there, then we can wrap it with the second layer, which is excellence. And really it's the idea of what does being the best you really mean? I mean, we live in a culture that says you've got to hustle, right? You showed me earlier one of your favorite books right now is – Tim Ferriss mm -hmm. and Tim Ferriss and Gary V and all these guys sort of live in a little bit of a culture of hustle mentality. And I hate that. I love the principle of work hard, determination. You got to have this grit and grind, right? Perseverance. But there is a very unbiblical principle in that, that you have control over everything that you do in life. 
And I think that I break down this idea that, you know, the world tells us to run fast, which is work hard, sweat it out, go as hard as you can. And yet in the Bible, God says you should fast, which is means do nothing, <laughs> give up, right? And there's some interesting dichotomies in that. So in excellence, I actually really break down a biblical perspective of what is excellence and what do excellent people do? I also unveil Tiger Woods' uh, training regimen, which is fascinating to me because he was winning tournament after tournament after tournament. And if you look at it, it still was this unbelievable schedule. I mean, it was like 6 a.m. to like 9 p.m. nonstop. Anyway, all that to say, after you know who you are, then we can figure out how to become the best you. And once you're the best you, then we can add that third layer, the gobstopper, which in some ways is my favorite layer because it's the layer of, it, it's the layer of collaboration. And what I talk about in collaboration is just this need that every single person, when you're stepping into your God-given calling, no matter how creative or artistic you are, you need to have people around you. You cannot do this thing on your own. Because I think, first and foremost, when you do things on your own, you get all the credit. You, you can't point to anyone else. But when God puts a community around you and things start flourishing out of your giftedness that he's given you, and the world starts being impacted by your gifts— well, when you're in the right community, you can't take credit for any of it because you're like, well, it's all this team. You know, it's all, well, it's all of us. Isn't that where God gets more of the glory? Uh, and then the last layer, which is really the layer that touches the world, is contagiousness. Because the ultimate hope for anyone who's stepping into their calling, anyone who's stepping into their creative potential, if you will, is that it would change the world around them, that they would have impact, that they would build influence, they would have a legacy. And so I talk a little bit about how do we do that and what is, who is our audience, right? Who is it that we're trying to be contagious for? And I tell this amazing story about my grandfather. He's 85 years old. And it's a story about him buying an iPhone and just what it did. And it opened up this, this revelation for me. And it gave me words and something that I never had of what does it look like for, for creativity to be a vehicle for Jesus to change the world through. And so um, anyway, that wrestles with that. And then I end the book with really uh, just a sort of random mad gab of thoughts on what are some things that would limit our potential in life. I talk about fear. I talk about fame. I talk about pride. I talk about, you know, all the things that sort of could get to us. And how do we make sure we have a level head as we attack all of those things? One of my favorite things is I, that I write about in that is that for a lot of people, fear is a paralyzing thing. But when we can flip it on its head, it's actually a catalyst. Do you not think that when Jesus was dying on his last days on the cross, he had an immense amount of fear about what was about to happen? So I would argue that when fear comes into the creative process, that when we choose to accept it and embrace it and walk into that fear wholeheartedly, we actually become more like Jesus in our, in our creativity, which actually grows intimacy. Whereas instead, the world would tell you, gosh, when things go wrong, millennial generation, just back off, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> You'll get your participation trophy, so you're good, right? <laughs> So anyway, it's just stuff like that. Like how do you make sure that things don't come come in along the way and limit our own potential? Man, that's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the that's the second half of the book. So there's your cliff notes. I want to circle back around because you, you told me a funny story before we started this podcast about how uh, the whole, how you got the job at the Super Bowl. Yeah. Can you kind of share that story? <laughs> yeah. So back in November, we were asked to bid on an event. Um, we were told that it was connected to the Super Bowl, but it was held like a good 50 miles away from the Super Bowl at a casino 
this company was going to build this massive structure that held like five, 6,000 people. So, I mean, I don't even think we can fathom how big this thing was. It was going to be like 300 or 400 feet wide on one side. Basically, the, the job was that a sponsor was going to ask us to projection map the entire outside of this newly created building. I mean, it was going to be a huge, huge job. Projection mapping mean... Well, like we've probably seen these on YouTube, but you know when you take projectors and these buildings sort of have this like animated life to them. Saks Fifth Avenue has okay, this yeah, every yeah. Christmas, and they have like you know snowflakes coming out of the building, or the okay. <clears throat> building turns into a transformer or whatever. So that was basically what we were going to be asked to do. Was there was a company they were going to hire to do content, and that company had said, "Hey, you should hire these guys to do all your equipment." So we were going to bring in, I think it was like twenty some odd projectors, whole bunch of processing. I mean, it was a extremely large gig it it possibly could have been one of the largest gigs we had done to date and we put in our proposal we felt good about it the guys who had suggested that we do it are some of my closest friends and they had already basically had the job and lo and behold he calls me and says you didn't get it and so in november i'm I'm leaving i'm basically ending 2018 going man that's a bummer (laughs) like I wish we could have done the Super Bowl, you know? And, and in that moment, we thought, man, we are so close to doing one of the coolest events in the world, and it just went away. So <clears throat> January, come back to work, and um, literally now, probably 15 days ago, but 10 days before the Super Bowl, I get a phone call, and they basically said, hey, we want you to bid on this different experience. It's a much smaller room, um, still pretty substantial, but it's going to be Samsung and AT&T, and they want to basically create this lounge that is for like VIPs of VIPs. I mean, we're talking like Mark Cuban, Milo, Jack from This Is Us. They were all in the room. Tim Tebow was there. I mean, it was just anybody who's anybody got a chance to come to this thing. And I kid you not, within 10 days, the entire thing got planned. We were asked to bid on it. We got the accepted bid like five days before we were supposed to leave. Flights were booked four days before. We were getting gear two days before. I mean, it was nuts, right? And how crazy is it? Because we lost the gig in November, we learned later, because of politics. There was another company that had some different ends with the company that was hiring everybody. And so we just we just weren't on the list. But now that it was a different event so last minute, they needed to go with the company that basically wasn't already involved. And so merely because we lost one thing, it actually allowed us to gain the other. And then I get on site. I think this is where you and I were talking about this. I get on site at the Super Bowl only to find out they completely nixed the entire other building. (laughs) So the entire other project we never would have done because it would have gotten canceled. So that's a great example of how like failure is going to open up. And that wasn't the end, right? It was really the beginning because we had built this relationship. Failure had really allowed us to, and it wasn't even failure, just was loss opportunity. But that loss opportunity didn't mean that a window was closed or a door was closed. We still made ourselves available. We sort of had cleared our schedule because we thought, well, it'd be cool if something could happen then, you know, so. You kind of made mention to it just a little, um, uh, very briefly, but could you kind of define, give us like your definition of failure? I, I would say that failure is really not stepping into the fullness of what God has called you or purposed you for. And I think that the reason that I have to take it to that extreme is that I don't see you can you can be exactly who God made you to be, lose something, something not succeed, something not go your way, and it not be failure because that's actually 
the next step, right? It's just sort of a perseverance or a resilience thing. And this may not at all be the answer you were looking for, but I think that failure is less about, first of all, I think failure is self-defined, right? I mean, I think every human being is going to say, this is failure, this isn't failure. And, and for me, it's when I have chosen to not be who God made me to be, when I try and steal someone else's vision, when I try and step into someone else's calling. I guess let me, let me ask for some clarification in that because you thought you were in God's calling. I did. When you were pursuing the camp. Yeah. Do you think that that still could have been God's calling, but just wasn't your calling? Well, I, I'd say it this way. I still think that the camp is a great idea. I still think that that camp needs to be made. I think there is someone in this world that needs to make a camp that rises up the next. So here's my whole vision around this camp was that I started looking at the Fortune 500 list and I started realizing it's not pastors who impact society. It's not missionaries who change cultures. It's the people who are leading culture economically that oftentimes have the greatest impact, right? Facebook, Google, um, I mean, Apple, they're the culture makers right now. And so if we want culture making to change, to be a more God-focused, God-fearing, Jesus-loving people, then the people who lead the Fortune 500 in this country are going to have to be God-fearing men and women. That is a beautifully biblical idea. It wasn't for me, though. And I think that's something I've learned in life is that God gives me visions and ideas that oftentimes aren't for me. And it may be, it may be that it's, it's something that he's given me so that I can encourage and support and come alongside someone else. I mean, if someone were to call me and say, Luke, I'm building that camp, I guarantee you I would do everything I can to help them because I was so invested in that concept for so long. But here's the thing. I've now gotten a chance over the last five years through SALT Conference to see the people come up to me with tears rolling down their face to say, something has been unlocked for me this week. Something that you guys have poured your time into, not because I'm teaching, because I actually have never taught outside of this past year in a SALT Conference. (laughs) I've just been the behind the scenes guy. I've just been the guy trying to put it all together and curate it. But I cannot look at those people's faces now and go, huh, I should have built the camp instead. Because I see it. I see the full picture. I see people stepping into the fullness of their creative potential now. I guess I want to challenge you on your definition. And I want you to try to understand where I'm coming from. I think where my fear is by your definition is that you and I both know that it's very easily, it's very easy to say, uh, I'm, I'm searching for God's calling and do nothing. So you're just waiting for God's calling. I'm waiting for God to tell me what to do. I'm Mm -hmm. waiting here. I'm waiting here. But I feel like that's even worse than actually just going out and doing something and allowing then God to lead you where you need to go. I think that there is a place where we can hit complacency. I push back on this because when you and I try and do, 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 we rob an opportunity to be intimate with God. When we have to go into that furnace, I talked about that clay When clay gets molded, all this water gets added to it and pressure gets added to it, and then it gets put into a furnace. It has to wait. I argue some of the greatest things in life always come after a season of waiting. But if you're you're waiting and waiting for God's calling, how do you know when it comes? You've got to be listening. But I think we can be so busy in thinking we have to control our own destiny to get to that place. I mean, that's exactly why I never heard the SALT conference concept. I had literally started the company, and I had been five years in four years in before 
I ever even understood that there was this other whole vision. And I had been thinking it was a waiting game. Now, I could sit and I don't typically go back and agonize over a past decision or regret things in life. But, man, where would we have been if I had recognized the calling on my life four years prior? But I had called that a waiting period. I had called that a holding game in the process. But I had I, I'd put it this way. I had I'd convinced myself it was a camp so much that maybe God was trying to get a hold of me four years previously. And I never could listen to it because I'd photoshopped such a crystal clear picture. And I think in many ways he took away the staff member. He took away the lease to get my attention, to get me out of that comfort zone to say, hey, let's go back to square one. Let's see. Let's see if that Photoshop picture is the actual picture I gave you. You were working on something else while you were waiting on this. Totally. And I think that's healthy. I mean, first of all, you got to pay the bills. I mean, nowhere in my story do I accept <laughs> Hey, you should just be sitting on your couch just singing Kumbaya and waiting for the light to shine through the television and yeah. say, this is what you should do. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and that's what I wanted the clarity yeah. on. Just no, totally. Sure that and that's... I think there's a there's a responsibility to – and first of all, that's where, that's where just drive and perseverance comes in. I mean, if you can be in a job – here's what I'd say. You know, there's a great story, Esther, in the Bible, who um, – you know, she was she was in a job that she didn't want and then sort of was asked to do something for Mordecai or asked to challenge Mordecai and basically was said, hey, you may have been destined for just a time as this. I would say this. There's somebody listening to this that's working for Starbucks going, no, I know that my calling is not Starbucks. Okay, I, I may resonate with you. Sorry, Howard Schultz, but I don't think people's calling in life is to go work for Starbucks the rest of their life. But that doesn't mean you can be faithful in the little things and always attentive to listening to what God has for you. That doesn't mean that when we go in, we just say, well, woe is me, this is life. But always be hitting your knees and saying, Lord, would you just show me what this is? And until you do, I am going to be diligent in this. Drive and perseverance. Mm-hmm. How does that differ from what you feel like you shouldn't do in <clears throat> hustle and grit? Is there a difference between the two? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that you... I think that God wired us to be as best as we possibly can. The definition I put in the book of excellence is that the world tells us that excellence is striving, straining to be perfect. Whereas I think the Bible says that excellence is a posture of our heart. So if I'm creating and I'm doing everything I can, I mean, right now I'm in this season, right? I'm in a season where I am working some pretty crazy hours and I am in quote unquote hustling. But I'm hustling out of a heart to say, God, I want to make sure that you've given me a gift of allowing my story to be in print form. And I want to do everything in my power to be as honoring and as good of a steward as I possibly can. But there's going to come a point where that begins to rob my relationship with God. And when that becomes to rob my relationship with God, that's when it comes into this hustle grit mentality of I own the keys to my success. Mm. But here's the thing. When you don't, when you recognize I don't own the keys to my success, I'm going to be a good steward, but it's still not my money. It's his story. And so at some point you have to, you have to basically, to use a cliche line, you have to work like it's up to you, but you have to pray knowing it's entirely up to God. And I think that that's the balance. There's still drive. There's still perseverance. There's still resiliency because we live in a world that wants to knock you off your game every single day. I mean, we live in a world that our voice for what we're against is so much louder than what we're for. I mean, look at Facebook. I mean, when was the last time during election season that anyone said, here's the 10 reasons why I like my candidate instead of here's the 10 reasons why I hate your candidate, right? (laughs) And so we live in a world that wants to knock you off your A game. And so resiliency is so important as you step into your calling. I say this a lot, but stepping into your calling means you're going to step into battle. 
Because when you step into the fullness of who God made you to be, the enemy is going to do whatever he can do to knock you off. So yeah, you've got to have perseverance. You've got to have resiliency. You've got to have the ability to say, hey, when the going gets tough, I'm not throwing in the towel. But there comes a point where you have to sort of throw up your hands and say, God, I'm, I've worked as hard as I can at this point. It would be me trying to control every aspect of this. I'm going to let you take over at this point, And I'm going to watch you get the glory for this. Love it. You win this one. <laughs> so you describe failure. Uh, give us your definition of success. Man, that's tough. Um, because I think, I mean, I think success is, I don't know, maybe this is the pessimist in me saying that, do you ever truly hit success? I don't know. I mean, success could be the act of not failing. So success, for my definition, could be stepping into the fullness of who God made you to be. I think that would be a great definition of it. But I also think that you can step into your the fullness of your creative potential and not own it and not have what Jocko Willink talks about extreme ownership and, and really ruin the platform or the opportunities or the giftedness God gave you. Success can also be this um, I mean, I think you could look at it from a worldly side, but the truth of the matter is I have never defined success as I want to make a ton of money or I want to be at this place. I mean, one of the things my team knows about me is that success or money, monetary success has never been this goal as far as like, oh, I want to own a million dollar home and I want to drive a Tesla and I want to do all this sort of stuff in life. It's more a measurement of the influence that God's given you. A company that has $100,000 in revenue is a company that, in many ways, you've had $100,000 worth of influence given to you to manage. But a company that has a million dollars in revenue is a company that has a million dollars worth of influence. A company with $10 million or $250 million or $10 billion, I mean, look at what Jeff Bezos has. He has been able to build a company that his, his annual income from Amazon shows the influence they're having in culture. And so if we, if we flip the whole thing and we say that's, that monetary success isn't really important, then it's now the doorway to say, hey, I would say success is the effectiveness in which you hold the influence and the platform that God's given you gifts to go build and gifts to go create. I'll tell you, dude, I think success is a tough thing to to define. Yeah. Because I think it's not what the world defines. Success for me is not worldly means. I mean, success in many ways is not wasting my opportunity. I mean, I think that Ephesians writes about this. Paul writes about this in Ephesians. Do not waste your life. Make the most of every opportunity. That's someone who says, I'm aware of the influence. And here's what I'd say about that. P. Diddy or J-Lo, like I saw last week, we may think that that's influence. But the truth of the matter is, that's fame, right? And there's a difference between fame is recognition, but influence is the ability to impact somebody. You have influence because of the people you bring into a chair like this. What do you do with that influence? It's the same measuring stick of what is, you know, Irma McManus or John Acuff or Grant Cardone do with their influence that they've been given. And so I think success is the ability to say, have I stewarded the influence that God's given me well? Have I made the most of every opportunity that was given to me for kingdom purposes? Because that's really the calling that God gave me was to say, I want to help unlock something in people to help them see their influence in the world so that they can become a vehicle for Christ to change their lives. And we grow the kingdom in the process. Are you successful? 
I have no clue how to answer that question. <laughs> I think I would say I am successful from the standpoint of I have a rich relationship with Jesus and I get a chance to to impact people or I should say I'm part of a story that God is writing on our team's life right now that we get a chance to be at the intersection of some of the most amazing transformational stages of someone's life. I mean, when someone comes to SALT, a lot of people think that they're going to come learn about how to edit After Effects better or they're going to learn how to light a subject on film better or learn how to mix audio better for a live environment or for a film or for a recording or whatever. And they may do that. But I'll guarantee you, your soul is going to be refreshed. And there's something that happens when we have that incredible encounter that it's tough to say you're not successful. I mean, we could lose all the money in the world. In fact, this past year, we just went on tour. And I haven't shared this story with anybody publicly. So, But this past year, we were on tour. And we lost our shirts financially. I mean, we lost more than I paid myself the first two years of the company. And yet, I think it was one of our most fruitful ministry seasons. Because we were boots on the ground, we were touching lives, we were leveraging all of our giftedness for a small tribe of people who didn't know their influence and weren't going to take a three-day trip to Nashville to come to a conference. And so have we seen the fruits of that labor from a success standpoint in a worldly manner? No. Will we ever? I don't know. But it was a success for us. People have asked me ever since I've come back, hey, do you think you guys will do that tour again? And there's a couple of people on our team that would go, no. (laughs) And there's a couple of people on our team that go, "Uh, maybe. I can't afford it. (laughs) And I say, absolutely. As long as God provides, we'll do it as often as we possibly can. That's awesome. Creative Potential comes out March 15th. Yep. And this episode will be airing a couple weeks before it comes out. They can go on to Amazon, buy a pre-release. Yep. Why should they buy this book? Well, my hope is that something I've said today has resonated. Yeah. Um, because really what this book is, is it's all the things God's been teaching me in the five years as I've stepped into my creative potential. And I would hope that it would help someone else step into their creative potential. I mean, my, my hope, my desire for this book is that people would begin to read it and it would unlock something for them and that they would begin to start realizing the impact and the opportunities in front of them that they never saw. Maybe they were blind to it. Maybe they just, maybe they had their own camp Photoshop moment that they missed. But my hope is that they would read this and apply something that God's teaching them through my story and it would actually become their story and then they would go change the world through it. I mean, it would be incredible to hear at least one person would write in and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe... I can't believe that this book unlocked something for me. It shook something off. I had always thought this about this or whatever. And because of that, I went and started this organization and we rescue people from human trafficking. I don't know. Is that a grandiose vision? Sure. But I think that some of that's possible. That's that's at least my hope. I hope that someone, the, the reason I would tell someone to buy it is that I think it's time to invest in yourself. And if you feel like you're stuck, if you feel like you're not enough, if you feel like You've been at a crossroads in life where you're like, is this the right thing, God? How do I really step into this? My hope is that this would maybe shed a little bit of light on the next few steps that you can help take. Let me offer some insight. We want to support our artists, the ones that are creating this art for us and the ones that we are are gaining wisdom and encouragement from. You can pre-order the book on Amazon, which we highly recommend you do. But once the book goes live, I want you to go over to LukeMcElroy.com. That's it. 
Can you spell that? Yeah, Luke, L-U-K-E, McElroy, M-C-E-L-R-O-Y.com. Because if you know anything about distribution, unfortunately, Amazon will take a huge chunk of his profits <laughs> if you buy it from there. So uh, go ahead and buy the pre-release. After it's released, if you still want to buy it, head over to his website and pick up a copy of yeah, that. Yeah, I'll give some fun facts. I don't know if anybody listening is an author, but for anybody here that's maybe thought about writing a book, here's some things that are fascinating. When you pre-order a book, it helps an author so much. And here's why. Because it actually gets counted in sales twice. It gets counted on the day it gets pre-ordered. And so it would move up and down a pre-order list on Amazon the day it gets pre-ordered. But the day that it releases, all those pre-orders get rebatched and hit the day of. And so the reason that so many authors try and do pre-orders, and if you really want to support an author, you really believe in something. Like I have bought books from author friends because I am not going to read the book, but because I want to support this process because it's so vital. Authors do not make much money. You're going to spend 16 bucks on a book on Amazon for me pre-ordering it, and I may make three bucks off of it. <laughs> but that's okay because the thing is, it's the way that the game works is that if you can get enough pre-orders, you can move up this chart. And then you get exposed to a whole new group of people that may never know who you are. And then it impacts them and it starts this momentum rolling thing. So that's why pre-orders are so important. That's why sort of if an author says, hey, go pre-order my book and they're going to give you incentives. If you really support them, go do it. It means the world to them. It'll help them tremendously. And then after the fact, if you don't buy this before the pre-order, like if you're listening to this after March 15th, just go to my website. We'll, we'll sort of direct you in the place that it makes the most sense from there. Awesome. Well, I know you're busy, obviously, running three companies and have this book coming out soon. So I, I thank you for kind of taking Dude, the time. Dude, this has been so, so much fun. Yeah, you, you, you rock. So I appreciate all the wisdom you've, you've shared. You so thanks. Hopefully you can take Luke's advice and start thinking about those four layers. What are you doing to work on that first layer so that you can eventually build to that second layer? And as he said, one of my favorite things is this idea of collaboration. We are not alone in our ventures. It's very difficult sometimes to think about it as an entrepreneur. I'm doing this myself, but if you look around you, you actually have support. You just have to ask for it. You have to look for it because we can't do this alone. We need a team to help us. That's where it's going to take us into our next episode. When I sit down with Isaac Tolden, he talks about how he got to this fork in the road with his business and it was because of his group of friends around him he decided to walk away which opened up the door to a better opportunity here's a clip and really that outside perspective and that's why anybody listening here you have to have rock solid friendships and if you're not developing strong friendships people you can count on people that won't leave when you're not doing all the right things in the world people that will be there for you and people that will speak truth that's real wisdom versus biased uh, opinions based on their own experiences it's really important to have those kinds of friendships and if you're not cultivating them you're gonna at some point wish you would have like always i appreciate you coming every single week your opinion matters go online leave me a review let me know what you think every review helps if you want to reach out to me privately, you can go onto my website at howtofailsuccessfully.com. There's a contact sheet. Just reach out to me. Let me know what you think. Thank you, and I'll see you next week.